Hello, I'm Joanna Lumley. I'm in my garden in London, and I'm walking down the garden path to the music room. In there, I'll find my husband, the composer and conductor, Stephen Barlow. Now, we've been married almost 40 years, and I think, however long you've been with someone, you have questions that you'd like to ask your partner. So this podcast is my chance to ask Stephen the questions I've always wanted to ask him about one of his and my greatest passions, classical music. Welcome to Joanna and the Maestro. Hello, Maestro. Hello, and welcome back to these podcasts, which I'm loving. Are you loving doing them? Love it. We literally can't be stopped. Don't put that special face on. Today, I wanted to talk to you about the central part of music, really, which is orchestras, instruments, and the musicians. I love it. Stevie, I took off the shelf this colossal, it's a full score, and this is what is placed on the conductor's podium yeah. in front of before every opera or symphony or whatever he's doing in front of every there's it's, always this there it's called the full score because it's got absolutely everything in it every constituent part every instrument all the voices it's even got stage directions in it it's salome by richard strauss my gosh so this score i've got all the instruments are written down in german Yep. And so, although I'd be quite good at recognising in English, I'm not sure I would in German. Let me try. First of all, we've got Kleine Flöte at the top. What's now that? Now, that's piccolo. That's the very small flute, plays very high. Then we've got three Gr-Flöte. Yep, big flutes. Big three flutes. big flutes. And the third down from the top is two hobs. I'm not sure I know what a hob is. <laughs> What are they? <laughs> That's oboes. Oboes. And then we've got a um, horn, English. English horn, because the Germans use our expression, the English horn. The English call it the cor anglais. <laughs> and then we've got a hecklephone. Hecklephone, yes, which is a fantastically esoteric instrument. But Strauss wanted it in oh, this. Oh, yes, he wanted everything in this score. And then we've got S, E-S, clarinet. Yep, now S means E-flat in German, so that's a very high clarinet. And then we've got two A clarinets. Yep. Two A clarinets and yeah. two B flat clarinets. So he's got four ordinary clarinets and an E flat clarinet. That's five and, already. And a bass clarinet. Plus a bass clarinet. So, so you've got six, six clarinets. Don't you love it? We've got fagioli, which I know of flutes. He's got three. No, no, no fagotti. Oh, fagotti. Bassoons. So he's got three bassoons. Then yeah. he's got a contrabassoon, contrafag. Yep, that's the big brother to the bassoon. So it plays an octave lower than the ordinary bassoon. Wow. Extraordinary. The contrafag, when it's added into a chord, it makes things sound like an organ. It's so low and, mm. and chunky. We've got now horns, yeah. six horns, is I'm that right? Six. Oh, gosh, that's wonderful. Is that French horns? Is yep, that, yeah, French, French horns. horns. Yep. And then we've got... Three, four, and five, and six. E, E, what does this mean? E, yeah, no, he's asking for six horns, and there are three lines to write them on. Two horns on the first line, horns three and four on the second line, and then five and six on the, on the third line. So that's three lines of horns. Lovely. Four trumpets. Yep. Then we've got four, what is that? Puzzle? Trombones. Oh, how beautiful. Four trumpets. Then you've got one tuba. Yeah. I don't know. Is it a pauken? Pauken. Pauken is timpani, so the kettle drums. Kettle drums. Then you've got tambourine. Percussion. Is that glockenspiel? Becken. Cymbals. 
Kleine Trommel. That's a small drum, side drum. Celeste. Yeah, lovely. Well, don't just say that. What is it? <laughs> it's, it's, a, it it's a keyboard instrument mm. that, that has a very soft tone but plays very high. We've got two harps, harfen. Yep, got to have two. We are now three quarters, almost, well, four fifths down the page. And there, written with slightly heavier print, is the word Salome. Yeah. So this is Salome, the vocal. Yeah. And here we can see her little thing. And underneath it is is her text, which says here, Gekust. Johanan, ich habe ihn geküsst. I've kissed you. And she's just above the violins. So we've got violin yep. one, second violins. Yep. Br. Brachen. Violas. Then we've got celli, cellos, which yep. I understand. Yep. And then we've got the double bass. Contrabass. I can't add, and I haven't added these up, but this is an absolute mass. It's a huge orchestra. This is one page. I've got it open at two pages. One, two, three, four, five, six bars six to a Six bars page. to a page. How much time would it take to play that page? Because all of them are playing simultaneously, playing and singing simultaneously. So as the whole thing sweeps across, what is that? That's about 20, 20 seconds, maybe. So, And here we've got another page with slight, slightly more. Yeah, well, the tempo changes there. So, yes, but, but we're talking be- about seconds. We're not talking about... So this page is only open for maybe half a minute, 45 seconds, top. Yeah. And then you scud it over. Yep. You turn it over? Yeah, of course. <laughs> but you're looking at all of this. And I've seen you. Well, when you, uh, look, just explain to me, explain to me a bit. <laughs> looking at this, it's a mass. A, it's not very big. The writing, the little dot, you know, the dots and the notes. Well, it can't and be otherwise. It, you know, if it was printed in 16 font. But how can you, t- how the score can you would take be in? Enormous. No, but explain to me, how can you take in. Well, you study it. You you study it. You get to know it. Unless you're in rehearsal and something doesn't sound right, then you're not constantly looking at tiny detail because you you know how the music's supposed to go. Is that a good answer? I don't know. But you study it. You it, it's I've called desk you, I've work. I've seen you when you've propped open something and you go, "How does this go?" You sort of play a kind of you draw from all this the kind of sound of the tune and quite often you then sing to me the line of the singer and the words how do you do this are you very strange what's happened (laughs) are all musicians odd darling are they be blunt I think this is just exceptional. You're making me hysterical. Because this Um, is multitasking, even though the aeroplanes are going overhead. This is multitasking on a level that is very hard because in front of you is a room full of men and women with instruments. Maybe up to, this is 50, 60 people, is it more? 80 plus. 80 plus people. Well, hopefully, because it's a very big piece and the colours are so richly varied all the time. If you start thinking of how to cut it down. I mean, it is what it is to achieve the results that Strauss wanted. And with Electra, which was the other enormous piece that Strauss wrote around about the same time, the first decade of the 20th century. He actually demands specifically 117 players. 
It's for the delivery of the composer's imagination, a mix of colour, of a dynamic, by which I mean volume, of delicacy, because you, you, he doesn't use all those instruments all the time. No. He's in and out of colours and all the, you know, the, the full orchestra, and he plays at the hugest climaxes. big can an orchestra be? I mean, well, I imagine you, it can, I imagine you can get a skeleton orchestra who'll get a kind of tune out and it'll be fine. You'll have a, um, you know, two violins and a, and a viola and a cello, whatever it might be, yeah. if it's small, small, yeah. and a trumpet and a thing. Yeah. And you can get a good tune sounding out of that. But to go f- the full whack on the other end, how large can it be? You're nearly always restricted by the venue. You know, how many people can you get in? I mean, with, with Electra, Strauss at 117. I've only done that once. And we did have to spread some percussion and uh, instrumentalist into balconies either side of the pit. So it, it depends on the venue. But composers have demanded enormous orchestras. Berlioz, for example, famously for his Grand Messe des Morts, you know, Requiem, he planned it for performance in an enormous church. And I think when Simon Rattle did it recently, they did it in St. Paul's Cathedral. It's so massive. But he he was asking then for eight harps, uh, countless numbers of uh, wind players. And now the effect he wanted was that it completely overwhelmed you. Well, it would, because it's very rarely done, especially at that scale with the LSO. Mm. But other composers also wrote for very large orchestras, you know, but it does make it difficult these days simply because you are restricted by the size. Some pits are large, so you can go big, but the majority of pits are not that large, so you have to trim down a bit. All these instruments have a different, obviously a different sound, but they have a different volume of sound. Presumably this is in the music also, but how would the French horns not drown out the quietness of the celeste or the little playing of the piccolo or something. I mean, all, all the violas taking a tenderer theme. Do you have to balance that? It's all in the score. Strauss, for example, was such a complete expert. He was also a conductor, you see. He conducted every summer as well at the Vienna State Opera. So he knew what was practical. Same thing with Mahler. Mahler was a conductor too. Now, all I'm really saying is that their imagination was tailored by what they knew they could make work. So they write into the score. It will be balanced so that you hear the right instruments. And it is the conductor's job when you interpret these pieces to make sure that the balance is working. Mm. So the horns do not mask the clarinets. You see, the strings can play extremely softly. So you can put all sorts of delicate instruments with that. Mm. And actually brass sections can play softly too, but they can also play very loud. Mm. The wind section can produce a decent sound. And I remember Bernard Heitink saying about Bruckner, he said that you must always look after the wind section. 
because in Bruckner he writes in great chunks of sound. Where can we hear this, Stevie? Well, you can hear this big block of sound in the in Bruckner's huge Third Symphony, which he dedicated to Wagner. And this is the kind of passage where you have to be careful that the wind aren't buried. So it's a matter of conductors to make sure that the composer's ideas of balance and what's important at any one time are heard. And when a composer, for example, wants the horns to completely dominate an orchestral ensemble, then you get all four horns playing the same tune mm. and you can ask them to put their, their bells, the, where the sound comes out, into the air, pavilion on air. Mm. Dans l'air, and uh, it's a wonderful sight. See horn players lifting up the, mm. the bells, so that there's, there's even more sound. When I look at this huge thing, of course, it's impossible. All the players don't have these immense amounts of music in front of them. They They've just have a single line. Single They've got a single line. Now that fills me with such utter dread. <laughs> the thought of waiting there with this single line coming up. How do they know? A, I mean, they, they're musical and they know the piece, or they've studied and rehearsed anyway, but. These are hugely long bits of music, and they've got to know when they suddenly come in with piddly doot de peep, they've just got to come in at that moment. So how do they know? We should be talking about percussionists who only play one cymbal crash in an entire piece. <laughs> um, well. Their part then will say it will have numbers of bars. Okay. And to stop it getting really silly, they divide the number of bars you have to wait. It might be hundreds and hundreds of bars. It might be three movements. Orchestral players are pretty much trained initially to have a system. And so you would count off the number of bars. Mm, you slapped your leg then. Why yes, did you do that? because I put my hand down on my knee. If you're yeah. not playing, yeah. and you would be counting bars. But you never see mature orchestral musicians doing that because they're basically doing it in their head, counting the bars off before they I play. Think, uh, I think they're geniuses. It's, it's almost more genius than having the whole thing in front of you and reading it all simultaneously. It seems to be all or nothing music, doesn't it? <laughs> Absolutely astonishing. And why do they say desks on the first or second desk of the violins? Why is it called a desk? Yes, I, I'm, I'm not quite sure. Is it because sure. of the thing that props it up to hold yes. the music you, or something? Well, you, well, it probably comes from that. But a, a desk means how many stands there are. And in the string section, to where they're playing, where the first violins all play the same part, mm. they will have two players per, per stand, stand or desk. Is per it? desk. No. And the second player, the one on the leader's left, and therefore on the left, on the left, is the one who turns the page. That's absolutely right. Leans over, <gasps> left hand, turns, turns left hand out and of the way. And sometimes in the middle of a piece. Oh, yes. Diddly, diddly, yes, diddly, yes, yes. turn, whipped over, widdly, widdly, yep. diddly. Yep. Crikey. And that goes the same with all the, all the musicians, doesn't it? Yeah. And then the second desk is the one behind them, isn't it? Yeah. The second tier, as it were. Yes, and sometimes composers can divide the strings so they're all playing separate lines. And in, in, in Salome, for example, there's quite a lot of that, where he asks the first desk to play a line, the second desk to play a different line, third desk to play, and you get a fantastic sound. 
of lots of notes in high strings especially. I think music is magic, and therefore anybody who plays music is a magician. But when you were quite young and at school, and you were showing a great deal of musical talent, somehow Alan Wicks, the great organist, who seemed to be your mentor, spotted that you had an extra ability. What did he see in you that was special and knew that you should be encouraged to become a conductor? He talked in my reports very amusingly, my school reports when I was a chorister. He said I was always looking at him quizzically. And when he said something, he could see that I was weighing it up. I do recognize that because I loved that experience of being conducted just the same as I did when I was timpanist in the National Youth Orchestra. I was just hooked on how it worked that someone who knew the music intimately would direct a performance and gradually hone it with instructions about no too loud here or don't take a breath there or make a longer phrase here, think of the longer line. No, this needs to be together, you know, when people weren't quite together. And I think I was always really, really obsessed with how that worked, how somebody had that first of all, that vision, but then secondly, how they made that work. Secondly, he also accused me of being critical of others. I'd always had a, a criticism. You astonish me. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's appalling. That makes me sound appalling. I would say that I always weighed everything, <laughs> weighed everything up. You were analytical and you were... No, but I could hear if a note was out of tune. I could almost preempt what a conductor needed to say. And I guarantee you, sitting at the back of the National Youth Orchestra playing timps was the most wonderful place to be. Mm. So I think it was a slightly critical faculty, which meant, why does this music have to be like this? Could it be another way? And w which way is the right way? as well as which way would I prefer. So I think there is definitely a trait in conductors. Well, you've always said to me, and something I believe as an actress anyway, which is that we are the kind of conduits of what the composer, or in my case, the playwright, wrote yeah. to get it to the listener, the audience, as truthfully. Yeah. But also that doesn't mean blandly, does it? I mean, you want to have... No, you, um, when, I know where you're I'm going. Not, you know, this. I just... People nowadays always want a personality. They want a new personality, your own interpretation of it. And it's very interesting because that seems to have taken precedence over what was originally intended by the writer or the composer. I've noticed that you're a bit of a purist here. You say they wrote it. They knew how they wanted it to sound. Yes. Let's try to get it like that. Yes, I think that's absolutely true. Look, everybody feels some emotional response to music. But if what you do when you're conducting is simply emoting and showing how much you're, you're moved by it and you want it louder or faster and 
then you're you're basically simply saying, I feel this, so why don't you? You know, and trying to make an orchestra emote like you. And that is not the point. The point is to look at a composer's intention with an opera or a piece of music and try to get into that world, which means that you must have integrity. The emotion will come from the music and the Mm. audience must feel the emotion. If you play with emotion, you are out of control. Mm. And musicians and actresses and actors must always be in control. Otherwise, you're watching someone simply being hysterical. Do you think it's important for a conductor to be able to play instruments, to understand instruments? I mean, I know that you played well, the piano, but if you, and then Timps, you said anyway, but you also learnt the French horn and got, I think, a scholarship, having learnt it for a term or something. Um, your question... <laughs> no, I'm, what I'm trying to say is, isn't it important? I mean, you sang as well, so that you're, you're good with singers because you know that singers have to breathe. Um, you know yeah, what it's that, like yeah. to sing huge notes or long phrases or something, and you understand that. So as a musician, you, you don't just see them as a machine which no. produces sound. You know that the body no. comes into it. You, now, you know this also because quite often when you're, when you're talking to me, you pick up an imaginary fiddle, play a stroke on it, or a very high bit you were playing. The other, you suddenly <laughs> indicated something that was going very high, and you did an amazing sort of how it would be going right up to the top of the fiddle. So you understand the physical duties of players. You have to know how each instrument works. Because take, for example, the woodwinds, flutes, oboes, clarinets, bassoons, they all make a completely different sound and they produce it differently. So you have to know, as they do when they play together, how to actually start a note together. And that's pretty skilled and everybody takes it for granted. So strings create their sound in a completely different way and percussionists, for goodness sake... When I was a timpanist, I had to learn that you must know the moment when to play at the best time in the chord. If it's a string chord, the chord will not sound in all its glory for a nanosecond after the beat comes down and they begin to play. And you must know as a timpanist that you must strike that note slightly later than the beat. So you've got to know all these things. is so dazzling and I'm suddenly seeing in a picture when people knowing that they're not going to be on for 200 bars or the next movement you see them sometimes creeping out of the orchestra pit I've oh, seen shocking. that no no, that's no is in, that bad no, no no that's in operas in operas they do yes but, really, but uh, trumpets, aren't they allowed to? trumpets for example trumpets. and trombones what is that bad um, there's a terribly funny story which I don't think was very funny at the time the opera was Don Giovanni mm. Perhaps I shouldn't be too exact about this. And they were playing in a pit, which they had not used before. Mm. And the trumpet players played the overture and then went out of the back of the pit because they weren't required for, you know, 45 minutes. And they would have timed it in a dress rehearsal. 
So on their part, they would have 45 minutes written down. And so they'd go off and they'd sit in the green room or read a book or, you know, and have a rest. And then they'd come back into the pit in very good time to play their next <laughs> next section. But on this occasion, they didn't know the theatre very well either. And they got lost in the corridors. So <laughs> they didn't make it back into the pit in time. But, I mean, if musicians... You, well, none of them. They didn't appear. No, the trumpets. No, so, no, no, so, they so got the lost. conductor they, looked they, down to that corner, awful emptiness. Yes. <laughs> or was that for the Don Giovanni or something huge or some huge piece? The trumpets, of course, play in, in other parts of the opera too, but the finale without the trumpets just wouldn't be the same. But, of course, musicians learn how to cope with all of this. I mean, I played tambourine for Boulez in the National Youth Orchestra in the Rite of Spring. Well, I sat there for quite a long time, 45 minutes, and then I just played eight bars in 4-4 four, four of chink, 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 watching very carefully to make sure that I was focused. And then I sat down, put the tambourine very quietly down, and sat there for the rest of the performance. Um, who owns the instruments? The players, of the, course. Well, um, how do you mean, of course? Because they vary so hugely. A piccolo is not much longer than... She holds out her hands. Not much longer than about eight or ten inches long. And a harp is the size of a small car. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, well, they have to own them all themselves? Of course they do. Of course they do. That's been the, their chosen instrument. And that's what they play. Everybody has their their own instrument. I can understand that. Well, I can't understand anything, actually. I mean... It, I feel as I'm literally sinking back into a huge cloth bed of non-knowledge. <laughs> but you're, you're elucidating <laughs> no, but me. You're you... brightening up my day all the time, Sophie. <laughs> it's a good thing to know. I can remember when you were conducting Turandot at Covent Garden. It was a revival of it, the great Serban production, which yeah. was ravishing to look at. Amazing. And I sat in a box at the side with Jamie, my son. My favourite position is to be able to see into the pit, the conductor and the pit, and see Could the you? players. Could you see it mm -hmm. all? And then also onto the stage, so you can understand the whole thing of it working. And I've got to say, that is a pretty colossal opera. It's a huge, huge orchestra. Huge orchestra, and not only that, but an enormous amount of chorus and people like that. Yeah, big Quite chorus. a lot of principals as well. Yep. And at one stage, I think, I asked you afterwards, you said there are about 157 people in front of you. Yeah. And it's absolutely well, thrilling. It's a backstage, huge backstage ensemble of brass as well at the end. My heart was bursting with pride. Before the show, you sometimes say, you can come around to the dressing room. I don't want to do that. I get so panic-stricken. Being an actress myself, I, I get all this kind of... Uh, blah, blah, blah. But then sitting in the audience, as soon as you come on, I think... It'll be all right now. I've never felt any fear about you at all. And to see you riding that kind of roller coaster through that spectacularly vast opera, it's pretty thrilling stuff. Well, it, it, it was a huge privilege to be able to do it. I mean, that conductors never lose that. Because it's not, it's not about domination of everything. It, it's about guiding and guidance. And you came to see... Electra, didn't you, in yeah. Seville? Yeah. With that wonderful cast. I would wish sometimes that you'd been able to come with me more, but that is not the way of our life. And so there we leave it. Our sad life spent much of it apart. 
<laughs> me missing all the best bits of Stevie driving the golden chariot across the sky like Phaeton. Um, can we choose a piece to go out on? Could we have something from Salome by Richard Strauss? Well, it would be fantastic to hear a bit of Salome's famous dance of the Seven Veils. Phenomenal piece of music by Strauss. Let's hear it. In this episode, you heard the following music. Salome, Opus 54, Scene 4. Salome's Dance of the Seven Veils by Richard Strauss. It was performed by the Vienna Philharmonic and conducted by Sir George Salty. The record label was Decca Music Group Limited. Salome, Opus 54, Scene 1. Bichon ist die Prinzessin Salome Hirte Nacht by Richard Strauss. It was performed by Josephine Vesey, Waldemar Kment, Zenon Kosnowski, and Heinz Holsek, the Vienna Philharmonic, and conducted by Sir George Salty. The record label was Decca Music Group Limited. Salome, Opus 54, Scene 4. Ach, ich habe denin mund geküsst Jochenen, by Richard Strauss. It was performed by Birgit Nilsson. Gerhard Stoltz, the Vienna Philharmonic, and conducted by Sir George Salty. The record label was Decca Music Group Limited. Electra. Electra Svesta, Finale, by Richard Strauss. It was performed by Fritz Reiner, Ing Bork, Francis Yind, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and the Chicago Lyric Theatre Chorus. The record label was BMG Entertainment. Symphony No. 3 in D minor, Zeimlich Schnell, by Anton Bruckner. It was conducted by Johannes Wildner and performed by the new Philharmonic Orchestra of Westphalia. The record label was Naxos. Salome, Opus 54, Scene 2. Du wirst das für mich tun, by Richard Strauss. It was performed by Birgit Nilsson, Voldemar Kmet, the Vienna Philharmonic, and conducted by Sir George Salty. The record label was Decca Music Group Limited. Salome, Opus 54, Scene 3. Ver de nicht bang, Tochter de Herodias, by Richard Strauss. It was performed by Birgit Nilsson, Eberhard Wachter, the Vienna Philharmonic, and conducted by Sir George Salty. The record label was Decca Music Group Limited. Don Giovanni Act 2, A. Ah, Dove il Perfido, by Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. It was performed by Alexandrina Pendachanska, Kenneth Tarver, Lorenzo Regezzo, Nikolai Borkev, Olga Pasishnik, Sunchai Im, the Freiburger Baroque Orchestra, and conducted by Rene Jacobs. The record label was Harmonia Mundi. Salome. Opus 54, Scene 4, Salome's Dance of the Seven Veils, by Richard Strauss. It was performed by the Vienna Philharmonic and conducted by Sir Richard Salty. 
The record label was Decca Music Group Limited. All music for the intro is supplied courtesy of Naxos Music UK. Mozart's Exultate Jubilate K165, performed by Pretty Coles, Camerata Casovia, and conducted by Johannes Wildner. Licensed courtesy of Naxos Music UK Limited. <laughs>